I learned in my research, oh my God, there's this whole kind of layer to this. Not only is it not evidence-based to cut out foods and, you know, do elimination diets for those conditions, but actually there's not really good evidence that those conditions really exist. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Solsmith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I get to chat with my longtime friend and colleague, Christy Harrison. Christy is a journalist, registered dietitian, and certified intuitive eating counselor. She's the author of Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And today, we are talking about her new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being. Christy's wise, calm, and thoughtful voice has helped to guide thousands of people out of diet culture and into better, more peaceful relationships with food and their bodies. In The Wellness Trap, she's really continuing this vital work, raising incisive questions and helping us to unlearn decades of marketing and pseudoscience and reject this definition of health that is so pervasive, but both dangerous and impossible to sustain. It's a book I'm so grateful to have on my bookshelf, and I always love chatting with Christy, so I know you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Here's Christy, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And... They are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon to Christy Harrison, who you're about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash burnt toast bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. So this is the first time we've really gotten to catch up since you became a mom. And I just want to say it's very annoying that I'm leading with that question. <laughs> Women get asked all the time to talk about this. Men rarely do. Although I would, if I had more male podcast guests who had recently become dads, want to know about it. But yeah, how are you doing? And how do you feel like entering motherhood has changed or informed your relationship to everything you work on? I'm doing okay, but I'm having a really hard time balancing mom life and work life. And a big part of me just wants to leave work and be a stay-at-home mom. But, you know, honestly, we can't afford to do that. (laughs) And right now I'm the primary earner. My husband is the primary childcare. So there's that piece, like the capitalism Mm -hmm. piece. And also I do love my work, right? I feel like I couldn't 
imagine not having that be at least part of my life. So it's just been a real adjustment of like switching gears, switching back and forth. And, you know, I work from home and my daughter's home. And so like I will go fill my water and she's there and, you know, wants to play or Mm -hmm. go to the bathroom. And it's like, it's great, but it's, it's so... It's a constant, like, mindset shift. Like, it am is. I in work mode or am I in mom mode? Right. And somehow you're kind of always in both, which is yes, which is tough. Especially, like, in this day and age of, you know, your email is in your pocket. And <laughs> yes. so when I'm watching her, I'm like, one eye is on the phone, or you know, and then, mm-hmm. I, and then I feel terrible because I'm not present. And then, you know, when I'm working, like, one ear is out for her or... Right. wanting to be with her, you know, just my heart is pulled in that direction. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I love her so much and yeah. I want to spend all my time with her. She's like just at such a cute age right now too. Like she's yeah. starting to talk and walk and, you know, oh, it really all is the, the things, all the yeah. milestones. Yeah. So, so yeah. fun. So, so it's fun. been a real adjustment. But like in terms of how it's affected or informed my relationship to the topics I cover, that's also been really interesting because... Like, it's made me so grateful that I was fortunate enough to heal my own relationship with food before having kids and my body. And that is such a huge privilege and, you know, expensive, right? That was like a decade of psychotherapy, right. at least. <laughs> to a lot get of to hard that work point. and, yeah, and resources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It feels like it's paid off in the sense that, like, yes, my body has changed, but I'm not fixated on that. Like, yes, you know food is sometimes tricky with her, like, you know, getting her to eat and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, but I'm not fixated on that. It's one thing to say, you know, yes, division of responsibility, trust your child's body, et cetera, et cetera, like when you're not in it. Mm-hmm. But it's quite another when you have a toddler sitting in front of you screaming yes. or fussing because they're hungry but refusing to eat what you put in front of them. So there's that piece, too, of like having to navigate wanting to make sure she has enough. Thankfully, it's not sort of coming from this orthorexic place of like, need to get her more vegetables or whatever. It's like (laughs) literally like, what will this child eat? And how do we avoid the hunger meltdowns from now? Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Right. It's a strategy thing of managing her day and your day. If she's hungry in an hour, you just give her more in an hour and that's fine too. But, you know, as she's starting to have more like scheduled stuff going on, there is that reality of having to plan and... Right. um, What if we're in the car in an hour and it's actually mm-hmm. not that easy. And that's when they realize that they wish they yep. ate that yogurt. Yeah. We have all these kind of best practices or even really strong, like sound strategies. But mm-hmm. then like the in the moment, implementing them can be so, I don't know. It's like you can just forget it all. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you can just, just panic a little. When it's your kid and like you want to do the best for them. A lot of it is not life and death, but some of it really feels that way. You know, like with the choking stuff, like that's something that I have gotten kind of anxious about and been really sort of like meticulous about, okay, we have to cut this in this way and squish this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and now it's like getting so vague because my daughter's over one. And so now a lot of the guidance that you see from like reputable sources online is like, well, if they're under one, cut the blueberries this way, but maybe they can have a whole blueberry once they're one, but maybe not. Like, see what your child's, you know, <laughs> capacity is. Just try it out. Yeah. It out. Can and you I'm measure like, their esophagus? Like, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, thank you. Let's just keep squishing them. And right. then, of course, my husband might have a different idea of what mm-hmm. we do. And it just feels so fraught. Mm-hmm. 
even when you go to the pediatrician for guidance, right? What should we do about this question that feels so fraught and we can't like come to an agreement? And they're like, well, you know, you could do it this way, but you also could do it this way and like see what you think. And it goes back to this kind of like do what feels right for you situation. Mm -hmm. And we go to a pediatrician who's very conventional, like a MD, not integrative or functional or anything like that. But just for a lot of things, I think there aren't clear-cut answers. And so it's been really a lesson in like having to let go and trust and just do the best we can to like set our boundaries and our, you know, strategies and then maybe change them as things evolve. I think it's such an exercise in learning to trust getting to know your child and yourself as a parent and learning what makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is like you don't know that immediately. So there's this like gray area where you're trying to figure out how to trust that. And nobody ever has really good advice for, you know, getting to that place. Like it's just time and experience that gets you more comfortable navigating those things. Totally. And it's just so much emotional and mental labor. It is. Like, constant, constant labor that is often very invisible. Yeah, it really is. Thankfully, I'm sort of out of the place where I was like furiously Googling at three in the morning, you know, like first six months where you're just like, Mm -hmm. what is even happening? Like, what is this crying normal? I feel like that all is like somewhat in the rear view now, but I think no one really talks about the toll that that takes on our mental health, right? That sense of like not knowing what the hell is going on and feeling like you're responsible. Oh, it's a trauma for sure. Yeah. And it has a long tail, I think, of, you know, getting through, like sort of processing how deep that fear was Mm -hmm. and like those 3 a.m. rabbit holes. Like that's, that's a real thing for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't even have to go through like what you went through with the medical trauma of... Oh, yeah, but I just, for everyone, across the board. Yeah, no, totally. Having a human that you are now responsible for keeping alive is, that's a whole thing. And they just send you home with them, like, okay, God, good luck. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you are doing an amazing job. Thank you. And, you know, at the very same time you've been doing all of this, you've also been getting a new book ready, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're here to talk about. So first of all, big applause for that, because I think you had a similar timeline with this book as I had with my first book, mm-hmm. where you were writing it while you were pregnant. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. I think we were emailing about like, yeah, due dates of babies <laughs> and books and how close together you want them to yep. be. <laughs> and then, of course, coming back from your maternity leave and jumping right into getting ready to launch a book mm-hmm. is, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. So the new book is called The Wellness Trap. It is a deep dive into the underbelly of modern wellness culture. It is fascinating, so impeccably researched, of course, because it's Christy. (laughs) Tell us what inspired this and what made you want to go deeper into wellness and especially right now. I think I initially was interested in this idea because in late 2020, you know, I was seeing how the pandemic was making us so much more vulnerable to wellness culture and how, you know, the wellness industry and wellness influencers were capitalizing on COVID to sell products that had no good evidence behind them and how wellness culture in general was like leading people down rabbit holes of mis and disinformation and 
you know, driving increases in conspiracism. We were starting to see like QAnon popping up in wellness spaces and, you know, driving the anti-vax movement further into the mainstream and just generally like leading to some really weird and dangerous places. So Mm -hmm. that was sort of the impetus to do the book at that time. And, you know, I had covered wellness in a chapter in my first book, and that's a chapter that seemed to really resonate with a lot of readers. I think wellness, you know, in some ways is the new guise of diet culture and it's so insidious and people will be like, well, I'm recovering from my eating disorder and now I'm just going to get really into wellness. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's such a such a fraught territory. And that's a lot of like what we talked about when you interviewed me for your first book, right? The sustainable food movement, Michael Pollan, yeah. like the problems with that and, you know, the anti-fat bias that's inherent in those arguments, but also the anti-food bias, right? The demonization of certain foods and lionization Mm -hmm. of others and the sort of orthorexic mindset that can come out of that. And I see that so much in my clients who are recovering from disordered eating, but something I've also seen a lot over the years with both clients and readers and listeners is that people will come to me saying, you know, my functional medicine doctor diagnosed me with leaky gut syndrome or my naturopath told me I have adrenal fatigue or Mm -hmm. this person online told me I have chronic candida and, you know, they told me to cut out all these foods and take out all these supplements as a way to treat it, but it's really messing up my relationship with food. Like, how do I do these things that I need to to take care of my health while maintaining a peaceful relationship with food? And I feel like that's been happening more and more in recent years. Yes. And I just want to pause there for a minute because I have a feeling a lot of folks listening are like, yes, yes, that's me. It is so common. And so talk a little bit about, you know, how do you approach this with clients and how do you think about it in terms of the book? Like, are there conditions where elimination diets are sometimes helpful and informative or do you see this very much as misdirecting people from really working on things that would actually be health promoting? Yeah, such a good question. I mean, and I want to empathize with anyone who's in that position first and foremost. Like I'm someone also with multiple chronic illnesses and things that took years to get diagnosed and, you know, have been down wellness rabbit holes myself. So very much empathize with like the desire for answers. And yet for those three conditions I mentioned, which I cover in the book, you know, chronic candida, leaky gut syndrome and adrenal fatigue, I learned in my research, oh my God, there's this whole kind of layer to this. Not only is it not evidence-based to cut out foods and, you know, do elimination diets for those conditions, but actually there's not really good evidence that those conditions really exist. The symptoms people experience are very real. And there's like grains of truth in each of those conditions. People might be fatigued, right? But it's not coming from your adrenals being exhausted or overworked, Mm -hmm. right? People might have, you know, digestive issues or acne and bloating and, you know, dry skin and all these disparate symptoms that might be related to something underlying or might be, you know, all kinds of different conditions that are going on that are not caused by a chronic overgrowth of yeast in your body, right? Or, you know, people might have digestive issues that are causing them distress and that, have a real medical explanation or are, you know, in part driven by disordered eating and some underlying medical stuff. But that's not because your gut is leaky and it's causing all these symptoms throughout your body, right? 
it's really hard to untangle that. I think it's become more common for people to want to seek out a holistic provider or someone who's going to get to the root cause of things, right? Because so many of us are disillusioned by the healthcare system. I definitely have gone through my own experiences that left me feeling like conventional medicine was really lacking for chronic diseases and illnesses that I have. And so we get sort of excited by and attracted to providers who say, I'm going to get to the root cause. I'm not just going to give you medicine, but I'm also going to like figure out what's actually going on and give you a treatment that's holistic. I have endometriosis and I have migraines. I completely remember just feeling so dismissed. No one in my regular doctor's office was considering my symptoms as anything more than just like pain management, you know, Mm -hmm. like, let's try Advil. If that doesn't work, let's try more Advil. And then let's try some kind of prescription Mm painkiller was like (laughs) the beginning and end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So of course, it was so appealing to try to find some more cohesive explanation, right? Mm -hmm. Like some other condition or something that would link all of these sort of murky symptoms together. It's such an understandable place to be in. And it makes me yeah, really angry at mainstream medicine for ignoring particularly women, right? I mean, there are these things that I think conventional medical care is not necessarily set up to address, you know, these quick five to 15 minute appointments that we have with most of our providers don't really allow enough time to get into the details. And I think that's one thing that like integrative and functional and alternative medicine providers of all stripes provide Mm. really well is like empathy and time. My experience and that of many people I've talked to has been that that can sort of outweigh at first maybe the fact that some of these providers really aren't giving evidence-based treatments and in many cases are actually doing the thing that they accuse conventional medicine of, of like a one-size-fits-all solution, right? Because Mm -hmm. It's painted in wellness culture as conventional medicine just wants to slap a Band-Aid on it. They want to just give you medicine to make the symptoms go away. They just care about symptom management. They don't want to get to the root cause. Everybody's treated the same. It's not personalized or individualized. But actually, in a lot of these wellness spaces, it's kind of the same thing. Instead of giving you pain management or treating everyone who has a certain condition with a certain protocol, it's, okay, let's give everyone who has this so-called condition, whether or not it's it's a genuine condition. Mm-hmm. Let's have them cut out all these foods. Let's have them take these supplements. You know, let's have them do these protocols. It's not actually really addressing holistic health. It's not addressing people's well-being in a, in a global sense. And I think right. in many cases, right. we see people who struggle with those protocols and develop really disordered eating as a result. I've had some people tell me, like, I told my functional medicine doctor that I had an eating disorder history and, you know, to please take that into account. And they still recommended these elimination diets. Doctors don't have the time and the resources to be up on everything, right? Like our medical system is set up to be sort of siloed. So people have their specialties and Unfortunately, like disordered eating is seen as a specialty and it's not seen as something that's relevant to every provider. Maddening. Like, sorry, it just makes no sense. I know. It obviously is going to underpin everything. As I talked about in my first book, that it's a special silo and that it's a really small percentage of the population that has eating disorders Mm -hmm. really does a disservice to everyone because disordered eating, maybe not clinical eating disorders, although those are also far more prevalent than are actually diagnosed, but disordered eating as a sort of larger space and percentage of the population is so rampant and 
you know, most providers, I would say, when they're talking to someone, you know, any patient that comes in their door is likely to be struggling with some level of disordered eating in our culture, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I think this is especially true when we look at people with digestive disorders, right? There's evidence yes. that something like 98% of people with eating disorders have a functional gut disorder and that like somewhere around half, it might be, I can't remember the statistic exactly. I think it's like 45% or something of people in one study went to a specialty clinic for digestive disorders actually had an eating disorder or disordered eating. So really practitioners should be almost taking that as a baseline, or mm-hmm. at least like that should be one of the first screening questions they're asking with totally. any new patient intake, like figuring out what this person's relationship is with disordered eating and how do we need to protect them before we consider any protocols. I think that that needs to be like a first line question, a first line treatment, and, you know, getting people help for their disordered eating before putting them on any sort of elimination diet, I think is essential. And from what I've seen in the research and what I've seen in my own clinical practice, I really think that elimination diets are not the panacea they're made out to be. They're in Mm -hmm. a lot of cases not effective, can certainly drive people further into disordered eating. But even beyond that, are not necessarily effective at identifying any sort of food sensitivities. The placebo and nocebo effect are very real. People have pre-existing beliefs about certain types of foods. And when you do an elimination diet where you're like systematically removing and then reintroducing foods, those beliefs can get activated, you know? I think the providers in many cases exacerbate that, right? Like it's like, okay, take out all these foods and then you know, you're going to bring in gluten, you're going to bring in dairy, watch for symptoms. Like if you notice bloating, this and that, you know, it's sort of like mm-hmm. making people hyper-focus on perceived symptoms. And the mind-body connection is very real. And we know that the placebo effect actually has physiological effects on our body. It can activate the endogenous opioid system, which is how our body creates pain relief for itself. And so in conditions where pain is a big part of it, we can definitely have like strong placebo effects and strong nocebo effects show up. So if someone is struggling with, you know, chronic pain or digestive pain, digestive distress, and they're bringing back in a food that they believe is going to be harmful to them, it really can activate this sense of increased pain. And also just the act of hyper-focusing on symptoms can make you notice them more in general, right? And there's even some evidence that like the GI symptoms you maybe are trying to resolve through the elimination diet, this process of tinkering and taking foods in and out, like this can cause some of those same symptoms in some folks, right? Absolutely. Not eating enough and having a sort of fearful relationship with food absolutely has effects on the digestive system. And tinkering and taking foods in and out can change the microbiome. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of buzz about the microbiome and gut health in wellness culture. And it's sort of always geared towards like we need to optimize the microbiome by taking out anything processed, by taking out all these foods that are considered to be bad and harmful. But actually, we need diversity in our gut flora, right? That seems diversity in the microbiome seems to be associated with better outcomes. And also the science on the microbiome is in such a, you know, infancy state that we really don't know the correlation versus causation there, right? It's way too early to be translating that to clinical practice guidelines, right? And yet so many in the functional and integrative medicine spaces are 
doing just that, taking really early stage science and using it to recommend diets and other protocols to people sort of across the board, right? You know, telling everyone to take out gluten, even though research really shows that there isn't even necessarily such a thing as non-celiac gluten sensitivity because a lot of the research looking at people who self-identify as having non-celiac gluten sensitivity will have people who already believe they're sensitive to gluten and then they go into a challenge where they're given gluten and they know it and Mm -hmm. they have symptoms, right? But of course, when you believe something is bad for you, the nocebo effect, again, is very real, can create real physical Mm. symptoms. And so it, it makes sense that people would report more symptoms in that case. But when people who believe they have non-celiac gluten sensitivity are blinded to the existence of gluten in their diet, so they're given like Mm -hmm. a baseline diet that is the same for the control in the study groups and then given gluten in a hidden form, like in a muffin that's sort of baked in or in a pill, then people don't actually report differences in symptoms. There's no difference between that the gluten group and the non-gluten group. I feel like that doesn't sit that well with a lot of folks, Christy. I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm sorry to ruffle feathers. And I mean, myself, I was yeah. so there back in, you know, the early to mid-2000s when the sort of early days of the gluten-free mm-hmm. fad started happening. I was convinced that gluten was at the root of my problems. And, you know, no one could tell me otherwise. And I think I would have been very resentful to hear something like that at that time, too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Mm -hmm. in my heart of hearts, like looking back on it, and even at the time, I know that part of me was like, is this really helping? I don't actually know. Like, I'm not sure if I feel better. I'm still binging. I'm just binging on gluten-free foods now. And, you know, my stomach is still hurting. I'm still having a lot of these other symptoms that, you know, I later realized were connected to endocrine and autoimmune conditions. So it wasn't totally clear. So I think for anyone who hears that and has a reaction and is sort of feeling defensive and like, well, I don't have celiac disease, but I still react to gluten. Like, I totally understand that. And it's possible, you know, it is possible, like, and who knows, right? But some people who have celiac disease are not diagnosed. So that's one thing to consider. Mm -hmm. But also another thing to consider is, you know, whether or not there might be some placebo and nocebo effects at play. And whether you really do truly know that you feel better over time, right? Because I think, too, like the placebo and nocebo effects are powerful drugs, but they can start to wear off over time. And so giving yourself enough time to see, like, is this continuing to have an effect? If not, maybe it's not gluten at all. Maybe there's something else going on, right? And I think to listeners of this podcast, I would say especially, right, consider your relationship with food. Consider whether disordered eating might be a play in anything going on for you. I just appreciate your empathy for all of that. I think it is tough for folks who have been down, you know, experiencing these symptoms and really miserable. And it's so understandable to want these things to be the answers. But it's not helping us in the long run if seizing on a diet-based change as the answer also creates all this other distress and stress around how to manage that diet change. And sometimes those diet changes can lead to more diet changes, right? If you feel like, okay, gluten, I don't know if it 100% did the trick. Maybe I need to, you know, and I think in Mm -hmm. wellness culture and with wellness practitioners, we're often encouraged then to cut out more foods, cut out more foods, cut out more foods, right? And so it can become this slippery slope into really kind of restrictive and orthorexic territory. I really want to talk about the anti-vax rabbit Mm. hole that you had to go down in this book as well, which I've done some reporting on vaccine controversies and like talk about intense comment sections. Mm -hmm. It's a wild ride. 
So I see your labor on this, <laughs> this particular aspect of it. You know, when I became a parent in 2013, it seemed like we were kind of just coming out of a period of really intense vaccine anxiety related to autism myths. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jenny McCarthy. So when I had my first baby, there was lots of pro-vaccine sentiment in my parenting circles mm -hmm. of people pushing back against that narrative. But of course, since COVID, we now have all this new vaccine fear-mongering. And it seems like a lot of folks who were previously like either pretty pro-vaccine or at least like not taking a strong position have gotten more vaccine hesitant. Tell us a little bit about what you learned in terms of how the wellness industry is influencing all of this. Yeah, it's been such a fascinating journey to go on and to see those connections because what I've really found is that the wellness industry is very much at the heart, I think, of the spread of the anti-vax movement in this COVID phase. There's been this longstanding kind of entanglement. But what we've really seen in this COVID phase is that prominent wellness influencers who've been spreading a lot of other misinformation about food and supplements and other alternative medicine concepts. I don't know if I should name any names here or not. I talk about them in the book, but... Oh, name um, names, please. Okay, well, we've got people like Joseph Mercola, Kelly Brogan, mm -hmm. Christiane Northrup. Some of the big names in yeah. alternative medicine were among the 12 anti-vaxxers who played leading roles in spreading misinformation about COVID vaccines on social media. They kind of get people in with the diet and alternative medicine info, like the promise of healing chronic conditions or getting off medication through lifestyle changes and things like that. And then the anti-vaccine content becomes folded into those messages. So they'll falsely claim that vaccines are, you know, unnecessary and harmful, toxic, and that if you've been vaccinated, you need to detox, but also that you need to boost your immune system through diets and supplements, which, of course, many of them sell. They'll push back and say, like, well, it's because, you know, I've meticulously sourced these supplements and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're the best on the market and I stand by them or whatever. But, you know, that is, in fact, how they make millions of dollars in many cases through selling supplements. So yeah. something to yeah. consider, right? Yeah, that feels like a red flag for sure. They'll systematically target people in these wellness spaces and parenting spaces as well. Recently, there's been a lot more calling out of social media companies' complicity with this, right? Because these anti-vax entrepreneurs would use Facebook ads to target people. And that was like a very big part of how they built their audiences. Or they would use other social media platforms to get people in, right? To get people into their groups. And there's been some cracking down on anti-vax misinformation on social media, although not nearly enough. One thing I've seen a few months ago with Joseph Mercola is that he'll post something kind of wellnessy but innocuous that doesn't seem at all related to vaccines. The, the body of the tweet will be like, what your poop, what the shapes in your poop can tell you about your health or something. <laughs> and then you click the link and Thanks, the actual <laughs> link is to an anti-vax piece of content. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like putting like disinformation on top of disinformation. <laughs> like also the shapes in your poop don't tell you anything. <laughs> your horoscope or whatever he's claiming. Right, right. No, it's totally ridiculous. So that's how wellness and the anti-vax movement are so intertwined. But I think even leaving aside these like super spreaders of anti-vax misinformation, I think the wellness space itself was really primed for this kind of misinformation to spread because mm -hmm. it really preys on the idea that you shouldn't put anything quote-unquote unnatural in your body, right, with food. Like I think that's the primary way that people 
get sort of pulled into this worldview is thinking about, you know, pure food, but then, you know, it sort of bleeds over and there's this slippery slope of like that purity type of thinking to household products, makeup, skincare, mm-hmm. you know, anything in, on, or around your body, right? It has to be totally pure and meet all these sort of arbitrary criteria. And then from there, it can be a really easy slide to rhetoric around, you know, vaccines being supposedly unnatural or toxic or whatever. And conspiracy theories about big pharma are really kind of endemic to wellness culture already, right? We see a lot of people, I think, listening to this probably are like, well, I'm too smart for that. I wouldn't be vulnerable to that. I think that's bananas, you know? And that's fair. And I think for many people, might be true, right, that the really bizarre conspiracy theories aren't necessarily going to take you in. Mm -hmm. But I interviewed a number of former anti-vaxxers who are smart people, thoughtful people, parents, you know, who wanted to do the best for their kids. And I think that really makes people vulnerable. I mean, just thinking of like what we were talking about at the beginning of the anxiety about your baby choking on blueberries, Mm -hmm. like when you think about like the baseline fear that we very naturally are sort of living with as we're trying to raise our children and keep them alive. Like, we're incredibly vulnerable. (laughs) And it does make sense to me that, like, getting a little piece of this and then you get another little piece of this, no one goes for the microchip theory first. Mm -hmm. But you can see how really smart, rational people could build their way towards it. And that's super insidious and super manipulative. Even if you have one or two like crunchy parent types of things that you're interested in or do, there's in the book, I have talked to Renee DiResta, who's now a researcher studying mis- and disinformation, who herself got interested in these ideas because when she had her first baby, she was looking for information about cloth diapering and making your own baby food, which were things she was interested in, even though she isn't like really a crunchy parent, but she had a couple mm-hmm. of crunchy interests. And so sure. Facebook's algorithm pegged her as a crunchy parent, started to serve her other things that crunchy parents mm, like, you know, course. backyard chicken raising, stuff like, you know, organic-y, crunchy household products and stuff. But then eventually, pretty quickly, anti-vax groups. All of this is fascinating and depressing <laughs> and enraging and making me feel many things. Like, where do we go with this? Like, what do we start to do to start divesting if we've sort of bought into some of these ideas and systems and all of that? And what should we be advocating for instead? I think at the societal level, we really need to make some changes to how the wellness industry is regulated, to how the supplement industry is regulated, to how social media is regulated. And I talk a bit about that in the book, you know, amending Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is like kind of in the weeds, but like also a huge deal. Section 230 is called the 25 words that created the internet. It basically allows any social media company not to have the same legal requirements on it that a publisher would have. So you know how like people can sue Fox News for defamation, right? They're allowed to bring in defamation suit against a publisher because of the legal requirements on publishers to publish the truth and not defame individuals or companies. Whereas social media companies and other platforms online that host user-generated content are not considered publishers of information. So anything that users post is not subject to those same requirements. And so I think one solution that has been proposed is amending the Communications Decency Act 
to not exempt algorithms for promoting things, right? Because social media algorithms amplify mis- and disinformation. They have been shown to Mm. spread that farther, faster, more widely, deeper than the truth. And that's because these algorithms are designed to maximize engagement. They're designed to keep people clicking and on the platforms. Show you the most extreme things. They get engagement from people who are fighting in the comments. They keep you on the platform to be served ads longer. And so that's what's effective. It's not done that way nefariously. These algorithms weren't programmed to make us outraged intentionally. It's just what happens to create the most engagement. So if we could amend the Communications Decency Act to say, you know, platforms may not be liable for everything their users post, but they are liable for algorithmically amplifying content. That would be huge. And in fact, Congress has been debating amending Section 230 recently. So, you know, call your Congress people. We'll link to some stuff folks can do there. But at the individual level, too, I think there are ways to, in the interim, keep yourself more safe from this kind of mis- and disinformation, both kind of practically and also psychologically. So one thing is called the SIFT check, which is like a method for sussing out misinformation and sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, right? It was developed by a researcher at the University of Washington named Mike Caulfield, who studies digital media literacy. And it stands for its four steps, SIFT. So it's stop, investigate the source, find better coverage, and trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. So Ooh, I love it. I think stop is like the first and yeah. most important thing, right? It's just like, all stop. Just stop. <laughs> yes. Just, just, just take a breath, take a moment, you know, don't share something out of outrage because that actually spreads it farther and wider. Mm -hmm. Quarantine the misinformation. If you think it's misinformation already, just don't let it spread any further. Um, And also, like, stop and breathe and regulate your nervous system to the best of your ability, right? Do do what you can to sort of feel in a more calm headspace as you reflect Mm -hmm. on whether this information is valid and worth sharing or worth implementing in your life. Um, investigate the source is like, okay, who is this person claiming this, right? Is it Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? We can see pretty clearly, even in just Wikipedia entry, that this is a prominent anti-vaxxer, right? So if he's sharing information about vaccines, maybe we don't want to go there. Um, You know, investigate the source can also mean like looking into, you know, what credentials does this person have? Is this person equipped to be speaking on the topic that they're speaking on? Or are they like wildly out of their lane? Um, mm-hmm. Find better coverage is, you know, don't just take what they're saying at face value. Don't just take this one social media post as, you know, a referendum on what you should be doing. Which usually have like no sourcing, mm-hmm. you know, statistics that have no citations attached, totally. et cetera, et cetera. Like it's just numbers that someone put on a picture in Canva. Yep, exactly. The whole point of SIFT really is to have a quick check to say, let me just take mm-hmm. myself out of the flow of this information rather than, you know, deeply engaging with it, doing a deep dive. Because Caulfield's point is like critical thinking is actually deeply engaging with something. And that's yeah. what disinformationists want you to do because the more you deeply engage, the more sort of primed you are for more disinformation, right? And so if you can sort of quickly take yourself out of the flow of it, that helps you from getting kind of indoctrinated by it and it helps also keep it from spreading. Such good advice. And it's like something we can teach to kids too, Mm -hmm. which I really love. It seems like just a really 
useful tool to keep in our back pockets. Totally. So we wrap up every episode with our recommendation segment, Butter for Your Burnt Toast. So Christy, would love to know, what's your butter? I've been really enjoying the show Severance. I just have not not super far into it yet. I'm like several episodes in, so I won't give any spoilers. And, you know, anyone who's listening, don't give any spoilers to me. But Oh, I won't. But yeah, (laughs) but it's it's a good choice. (laughs) It's fascinating. And I think it's also really appealing to me maybe because of my like difficulty Mm -hmm. balancing work life and mom life and everything else. It's like making me think deeply and interestingly about sort of what it means to have a separation between the two and the fact that the messiness and the difficulty with that balance and the need to like pare down our commitments is actually a very human thing and a very important Mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, if we are severed in our work life and personal life, like the incredible harms that that can cause and the sort of way that late stage capitalism like pushes us in that direction, right? To try to be like automatons who are just working through everything. And, you know, with everything that's happened in the last several years, I think more and more people are now pushing back on that. So it's an interesting show for this time, I think, in particular. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And this is not a spoiler, but I will just say when you get to the season finale, it is the most riveting 45 minutes of television Mm. I can remember watching in years. Dan and I were just like mouths open like the entire time. Like, what is happening? You know, like I was so tense, like, but it was, you know, in a good way because it's very entertaining. Mm -hmm. But like, it's, yeah, I cannot wait for season two. That's a great recommendation for anyone who hasn't gotten there. And season two is coming soon. Exactly. Get caught up. Then you can get in there. So my recommendation is a really great YA novel I just read called Love is a Revolution by Renee Watson. Mm. The main character is Nala, who is a black plus-size girl living in Harlem and her relationships with her friends and her family. It's so great because it centers a fat character, but it is not about her weight. Like, it's very much that's just, like, there. It's, you know, at one point, somebody even, like, sort of says something about, like, does she like her body? And she's like, stop assuming I don't like my body just because I'm fat. Mm. Like, go away. (laughs) I've been very into light and sort of comforting reads in the last, oh, I don't know, five years. (laughs) 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 Maybe because a lot of the times what we do for work is heavy Mm -hmm. and I need escape. But I'm also always looking for great fat representation. And this definitely checks all of those boxes. So anyone looking for a great, you know, weekend read, and I would say totally appropriate for, oh, I don't know, 10, 11 and up for Mm. sure for kids. That's a good one. That's awesome. I'm going to check that out too. Yeah. Christy, thank you so much. This was great. Everyone, of course, needs to go get The Wellness Trap anywhere you buy your books. It is out, so go get it. And tell us how else we can support you and support your work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. So people can find me at my website, christyharrison.com. I also now have not one but two podcasts. I have a new podcast called Rethinking Wellness that continues the conversation about all these things we've been talking about. I was just so fascinated by everyone I interviewed for the book and, you know, wanted a space to continue those conversations. So definitely you can check that out wherever you're listening to this. And it's also on Substack if you want to get it in your inbox at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Christy. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Virginia. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or review. It really helps folks to find the episodes. 
and consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. 